Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandar. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. And now I would like to invite ITMS President Christopher Premuk to lead us in the opening prayer. Chris? Hello to everybody. Uh, and I'm honored to uh, open our, our gathering tonight with a kind of a breathing prayer, a kind of centering prayer. And I will repeat three phrases. Um, and after each phrase, I invite you to take a long, deep breath in and then a long exhale and then I'll move to the next phrase and then we'll repeat the exercise two times. We'll just take a moment of silence to find a, a comfortable space to allow your body to uh, rest into your, uh, your seat where you are. A couple of long slow breaths and then we'll begin. that I may see. That I may listen. That I may hear. That I may see. that I may listen, that I may hear. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for that lovely meditation. And now it is my pleasure to present to you Judith Valente, our speaker for this evening. Judith, first began reading Thomas Merton in college shortly after beginning her career in journalism at the age of 21 at the Washington Post. She subsequently worked for the Wall Street, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal and was twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in journalism. She then covered religion as an on-air correspondent for PBS TV, where she reported on stories related to Thomas Merton. She is the author of two collections of poetry and several spirituality titles, including How to Live, What the Rule of St. Benedict Teaches Us About Happiness, Meaning, and Community, and The Art of Pausing, co-authored with Brother Paul Quinnen of the Abbey of Gethsemane. She has a new book with Brother Paul coming out in November titled How to Be, A Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship, which includes correspondence they exchanged over the years on a variety of topics, both practical and spiritual. The book was inspired by Merton's own apostolate of letter writing. Judith is an oblate, that is a lay associate of the Benedictine Monastery of Mount St. Scholastica in Atchison, Kansas. She currently lives in central Illinois with her husband, Charles Reynard. Judith has served on the ITMS board for the past four years and is its newly elected vice president. And now here is Judith Valente speaking on why we still read and need Thomas Burton, a personal journey. Judith. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sister Teresa and Chris. Thank you for the beautiful breath prayer. I really appreciate that. It is truly an honor. I know people always say this, but it is. It is an honor to be with you tonight and to have been asked by the ITMS to share a personal reflection on why we still need and read Thomas Merton. And it is especially humbling for me to follow so many distinguished Merton scholars and authors, including the one and only Jonathan Montaldo, Bonnie Thurston, Lynn Zabo, Chris Pramuk, Christine Boshin, Jim Forrest, Father Dan Horan, just to name a few. Giants 
whom I look up to. I speak to you tonight, not as an expert or a scholar, but as a fellow traveler with all of you, at one with every person who has ever read Thomas Merton's writings and made for them a place in the heart. I'm going to share the screen now because I have some slides that I think you'll enjoy. I believe each one of us here tonight can probably remember the period in our lives, perhaps even the precise moment when we first discovered a monk named Thomas Merton. Once we hear Merton's voice speaking to us from beyond the grave, beyond time, into the depths of the heart, it is as though he takes us by the hand and never again leaves us to make our way alone. For my good friend, Douglas Hurtler, whom you see here, who would eventually write and portray Merton in the play, Merton and Me, A Living Trinity, it was randomly picking up No Man is an Island in a New York City bookstore. I didn't put the book down, Doug says. It was as if this monk held a mirror up to my soul. For my beloved mentor, Mike Brennan, Chicago ITMS chapter president, seen here behind some stonework in Merton's Hermitage, it was as a 19-year-old on retreat, hearing for the first time Merton's famous, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going prayer. It was like a lightning bolt, Mike recalls, so different from the rote prayers I learned in Catholic grammar school. Another friend, Bob Reculia, who oversaw the Chicago Cynical Retreat Center for many years, first encountered Merton's writing in high school. If not for Merton, Bob says, I would either be a much more narrow parochial Catholic or more likely would have eventually abandoned Catholicism altogether. When I was in college, one of my classmates knew I was struggling to understand the stunning effect that the Vietnam War experience had on my older brother and older cousins who served in the military. My classmate loaned me faith in violence, but I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for the depth and nuance of Merton's thinking on the Christian call to not to nonviolence. Not at that point, anyway. Fortunately, though, I was intrigued enough to begin reading Merton's autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain. Truthfully, I did not have the experience of many others. It did not pierce me with life-changing spiritual insights. I had no intense desire to be lost in the secret of God's face the line in the seven-story mountain that had so moved James Finley, as he told us last January, that he decided to enter Merton's monastery. What absolutely grabbed hold of me was the elegance, urgency, and authenticity of Merton's writing. From the age of four, I felt I had a call to be a writer. And here was someone who understood that yearning, who grasped that to write is to think, to live, even to pray, and who, like me, wanted to write a book in which, as he said, everything can go. He also put words on another great yearning steeping in my heart. Please pray for me to our Lord, that instead of merely writing something, I may be something, and indeed I might be fully what I ought to be. Merton was one of the reasons I wanted to study in France during my junior year in college. So working after school in a candy shop and on weekends in a clothing store, I finally saved enough money 
to enroll at the Sorbonne. I told one of my theology professors back home that I planned to visit all the places Merton had been in his early years in France, Prague, Montauban, Saint-Antonin. But the lure of Paris for a 19-year-old, not to mention a lack of funds, short-circuited those plans. And that particular pilgrimage remains to this day on my bucket list. Still, the author of The Seven-Story Mountain was already tutoring me through his writing. He showed me that the best writers are like investigative reporters exploring the well-lit and shadowy corners of the soul. In more intimate moments in his writing, Merton is haughty, self-indulgent, petulant, stubborn, and impatient. Not very good traits for a monk, but also searching, poetic, funny, self-deprecating, in love with God, but also eminently human. Perhaps the most valuable literary lesson he imparted is that when I make myself vulnerable in my writing, I give permission to others to see in my struggles the narrative of their own lives. Merton excelled at this. In one of the many passages in the Seven Story Mountain, I find quite moving. Merton recalls a childhood memory when he and some friends are building a hut near his grandparents' house and his little brother, John Paul, seen here, wants to join in. The picture I get of my brother is this, this little perplexed five-year-old kid in short pants and a kind of leather jacket standing quite still. We shout at him to get out of there, to beat it, to go home, and wing a few more stones in his direction. And he does not go away. There he stands, not sobbing, but angry and offended and tremendously sad. He can't understand why this law of love is being so wildly and unjustly violated. Many times it was like that. Merton's brother, as we know, would later die in World War II at the age of 24 when his aircraft crashed into the sea. Many times as the youngest grandchild in the family, I endured the kind of hazing John Paul experienced. But this passage also makes me shudder to think how many times I had been like those older boys, lobbing metaphoric stones at others more needy and more vulnerable than I, those who needed my attention, thus wildly and unjustly violating the law of love. I would say though that my inner journey with Merton didn't flourish until many years later due to the confluence of two very pivotal occurrences. First of all, I began ex spending extended periods of time at a Benedictine monastery in Atchison, Kansas, seen here, after the sisters there had invited me to speak on one of my books at their college. It was the first time I personally experienced the deep prayer and community life of a monastery. And secondly, around this same time, I was assigned by my employer, PBS TV, to report a segment on the occasion of Merton's 40th death anniversary. That visit to Gethsemane proved transformative. It was my first encounter with Brother Paul Quinnen, who many of you know, who had been a novice under Merton. 
who would become a cherished friend, mentor, and my writing partner on two of my books. But just as life-changing was being able to stand inside the shed Merton dubbed St. Anne's, where he wrote Thoughts in Solitude. To sit quietly on the chair of dreams that you see here on the porch of his hermitage and experience the woods, the peace of the woods that he felt there. And to see at Bellarmine University, his journals written in his own minimalist handwriting in old ledger books. But one thing I could not stop thinking about was a display case at Bellarmine that contained Merton's personal belongings, his work boots, work shirt, eyeglasses, priest stole, and laundry bag pin. Here was one of the most famous people in America, someone who in another context would have been very well off financially from the proceeds of his writing. Yet the sum total of his personal possessions came down to a handful of items. Makes you think. This was the period when I plowed through all seven of the personal journals and the Asian journal, as well as any other titles I could get my hands on. And this is when I saw so clearly why nearly every serious spiritual seeker eventually finds his or her way to Merton. First, Merton speaks of God in unconventional and mind-expanding language as the immense silence, the primordial unknown, the nameless one, the one who is all, and my personal favorite, mercy within mercy within mercy. It seems that throughout history, faith traditions run astray when they neatly and narrowly try to define God as if God is a commodity we can mass produce and package inside of a cereal box. In the last few weeks of his life on the Mim Tea estate in India, Merton wrote about the dangers of feeling so certain that we have found the key to faith, faith, that this is it, as he said, this is the door, as he put it. But he adds, do not pin your hopes on the possession of a key. Merton helped me see that doubt is not only acceptable, it is healthy. Today, everybody is fighting over who is right, he says. Every side claims to have the answer. This is one of the religious facts of our time. It doesn't matter who's right. God is right. Hang on to the Lord at the deeper level and let all the others yell. I have never been particularly good at praying, but Merton deepened my understanding of prayer. He helped me see that the deepest prayer arises out of silence and that daily life is the soil from which prayer is constantly springing. It is God, it is God's love that speaks to me in the birds and the streams, but also behind the clamor of the city, God speaks to me, he wrote in New Seeds of Contemplation. And all these things are seeds sent to me from God's will. Merton taught me to find in nature a willing and companionable spiritual director. And I just love something he wrote to his friend, Sister Therese Lenfor, when she wrote to him seeking advice on strengthening her prayer life. His guidance was perfect for a rather imperfect prayer like me. And he wrote, 
Have you a garden or somewhere that you can walk in by yourself? Take a half an hour or 15 minutes a day and just walk up and down among the flower beds with the intention of offering up this walk as a meditation and prayer. Do not try to think about anything in particular. Our Lord is with you. The passage in which he defines his own prayer life is now so famous, mostly everyone here tonight can probably recite it by heart. What I wear is pants, what I do is live, how I pray is breathe. I often joke that I suffer from a dual diagnosis, workaholism and overachieverism. In this, Merton and I are soulmates. He produced an average of two books a year, wrote 20,000 letters, and joked that editors thought he secreted articles like perspiration. Yet Merton also understood that overwork is a form of violence, a violence we do to ourselves by running on a continuous mouse wheel, as so many of us do. There are times, he wrote, when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let himself be drowned completely out of himself by activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest and do nothing at all. It is the most courageous act one can perform, and it is often quite beyond our power. Thoughts in solitude. When I wrote for the Washington Post and later the Wall Street Journal, it was a given that you came into the office on your weekends. In fact, it was frowned upon by your editors if you didn't. But when we engage in perpetual motion, our line of vision becomes increasingly constricted. It is easy to fall prey to what Merton calls useless care, which binds us in emotional chains just as surely as if we were bound in physical shackles. Merton's final talk to his novices as their spiritual director, a life free from care, has come to mean a great deal to me. What is it that makes the world so opaque? Merton asks. It is care. And what is love? What happens in love is that each person forgets himself or herself. This is what God asks of us, to live in such a way that we don't have to think about ourselves. God will think of us. So you are no longer worrying, you just live. In this way, Merton says, life becomes less like an opaque package we are constantly trying and failing to unwrap because when we abandon our cares to God, life becomes more transparent. And we see God shining through, he says, even in the rabbitness of rabbits. And by extension, we see God more transparently in all of humanity. Which brings me to the year 2020 a year when the status quo became drastically distorted, as if we were looking at our lives through a funhouse mirror, no longer seeing with 2020 vision, but looking through a different lens at a new and strange reality. It was once again Merton who got me, and dare I say many people, through such a traumatic year. 
here was someone whose lifetime spanned the First World War, the Great Depression, World War II, the Holocaust, the invention of nuclear weapons, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and the struggle for civil rights. Merton understood crisis. And he proves enormously adept at honing in on society's weaknesses. Something he wrote to Dorothy Day back in 1960 still sadly resonates today. We, society at large, have lost our sense of values and our vision. We love fatness, health-bursting smiles, the radiance of satisfied bodies all properly fed and rested and sated and washed and perfumed and sexually relieved. Anything else is a horror and a scandal to us. How sad, for I am part of the society that has these values and I can't help sharing its guilt, its illusions. When I read that passage, I can't help but think of the armed protesters who showed up at some state capitals last spring in the midst of the pandemic to demand the opening of schools and businesses. Or of Texas's Lieutenant Governor who speculated that grandparents would prefer to die of the coronavirus if it meant keeping the economy humming for their grandchildren. We now know that the Trump administration hid what it knew early on about the deadly nature of the coronavirus. And still today, high profile people in media and politics and even some medical personnel continue to spread misinformation about the virus and vaccines. And some have even tried to rewrite what transpired at the US Capitol on January 6th, <clears throat> excuse me, something the whole world saw unfold on TV. Here's Merton back in 1968. I think the most dangerous thing in the world is the stupidity and moral blindness of the American leaders today. They are blindly and absurdly convinced of their moral rightness, he writes and they think that anything they do is in some way perfectly justified merely because they feel they have good intentions. Words that unfortunately still ring true today. Still, Merton being Merton, he does not leave us to drown in despair. His witness to silence and solitude his appreciation of nature spoke to the monk-like existence we were experiencing. The slowing down, unplugging, staying in our cells, so to speak, even if it was something we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. I think Merton would agree with a friend of mine who urged everyone to look upon the pandemic as a time for pan deepening. Imagine a man or group of people who alone or together in a quiet place, simply sit for an hour or half an hour in silence. They do not pray aloud. They do not have books or papers in their hands. They simply enter into themselves, not in order to examine, organize or plan, but simply in order to be from creative silence. Merton has also helped me make sense of another current challenge. As if a worldwide pandemic were not enough crisis, we face another urgency in our country, the ugly undercurrent of racism, which overflowed last summer. Now, Father Brian Massingale, 
spoke eloquently to our society in March on these matters. As a white woman, I cannot speak with the same authority. I will attempt only to speak from the heart of how Merton helped me arrive at some clarity on this complex issue. It came in something Merton wrote in 1964 to the African-American tenor, Robert Lawrence Williams, who wanted to put Merton's freedom poems to music. What Merton wrote back to him, for me, defines the fundamental issue for white Americans still today. The big problem you run into in dealing with white people, Merton wrote, is that they aren't black. And because they don't know what it feels like and they are not able to enter into the experience except abstractly. Hence, they may have good intentions, but these will lead to nowhere or will peter out. In his talk to us in March, Father Massengill said white Americans need to pause. They need to pause and listen to what black Americans have to say. Not judging, not condemning certain actions, not suggesting alternatives, but listening, being present. It is astounding to go back and read Merton's series of essays, Letters to a White Liberal, written in 1963. One cannot help thinking that here we are, some 60 years later, still grappling with some of the same challenges. Merton saw racial inequality not only as a burden borne by people of color, but as a cancer eroding the souls of white Americans. Pretty potent words. But what's important to remember is that Merton saw this as a moment for grace. The question to ask ourselves, he said, is not what is going to happen in our country, but what are we going to do? Otherwise, he said, the moment of grace will pass without effect. Merton didn't get everything right about race, as Father Massingill pointed out in his talk, but he got a lot right. In 1963, Carol Denise McNair, who you see here, was one of four young girls killed in a bomb blast at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Merton saw this photo in Look Magazine and was so moved, he cut it out and kept it. It inspired his poem, Picture of Black Child with White Doll. He also wrote to Carol Denise's father, Chris McNair, a letter that is today in the archives of the Merton Center and is reproduced here with permission. And in the last paragraph, Merton writes, the mercy and goodness of the Lord chose Carol Denise to be with him forever in his light and his love. Nor is Carol Denise forgotten on this earth she remains a witness to innocence and love and an inspiration to all of us who remain to face the labor, the difficulty, and the heartbreak of the struggle for human rights and dignity. Be assured of my deep respect. I wonder if there is a single American Catholic Church leader today with the moral gravitas of Merton, who could write such a letter to say the family of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, 
or any of the others whose deaths were so senseless and unnecessary. Merton's poetry remains among his most eloquent statements on the social crises of his time. I mentioned the poem, Black Child with White Doll, and I recommend reading it if you don't already know it. A poem I returned to during the racial struggles of last summer was one Merton wrote following the death of Martin Luther King. And even though it is about the King assassination and references information that was in news reports at the time, when I read it, I find myself imagining the faces of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Armand Arbery, Michael Brown, and the others. I'd like to read it for you. April 4th, 1968. On a rainy night, on a rainy night in April, when everybody ran, said the minister, on a balcony of a hotel in Tennessee, we came at once upstairs. On a night, on a rainy night in April, when the shot was fired, said the minister, we came at once upstairs and found him lying after the tornado on the balcony. We came at once upstairs. On a rainy night, he was our hope and we found a tornado, said the minister. And a well-dressed white man, said the minister, dropped the telescopic storm. And he ran, the well-dressed minister of death. He ran, he ran away, said the minister. And on the balcony, we found everybody dying. These days, Merton is challenging me yet again on another front. And this will perhaps represent the next leg of his and my interior journey together. I have been reading his essays and letters on peace and nonviolence. Peace, Merton said, is the great Christian task of our time. Everything else is secondary or the survival of the human race depends upon it from the root of war. I was deeply impressed by the remarks of Marie Dennis of Pax Christi at the ITMS conference last June. Marie reminded us that nonviolence is not an academic theory or an abstract philosophy. It is a spirituality, a way of life, a practice we choose to live on a daily basis. I am for the abolition of war, for the use of nonviolent means to settle international conflict against the bomb, against nuclear testing, against Polaris submarines, against all violence. Journal entry, October, 1961. Even amid a worldwide pandemic last year, global military expenditures amounted to $2 trillion. Now think of that in relation to this debate we just had over the infrastructure plan, $2 trillion for, for the military. The US government has budgeted more than $600 billion to maintain its nuclear arsenal over the next 10 years. But that is not the real cost of war. A recent PBS NewsHour report on the brutal conflict in Yemen began with these words. Assad Hassan is the newest member of his family and he may be the next to leave it. Most of the children in Yemen are starving to death. Merton helped us see that war is not only absurd, it runs against every single gospel principle. 
Yesterday was the 76th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. And August 6th, the Feast of the Transfiguration, ironically, marked the bombing of Hiroshima. These two events haunted Merton, even as the world continued to build up its nuclear arsenal and continues to do so today. One of his most profound anti-war poems, Original Child Bomb, reflects the clinical way in which the decision was made to use these weapons. Merton reflected with equal horror on the tragedy of the Holocaust. Holocaust. And this is really important because we see a resurgence of this kind of nationalist white supremacist talk today in our own country. Some of you might already be familiar with his poem, Chant to be Used in Processions Around a Site with Furnaces. Dorothy Day published this poem in The Catholic Worker in August, 1961. What makes both poems so powerful is that Merton incorporated language from official documents. Chant to be used in processions is written in the voice of the commandant at Auschwitz, ostensibly Rudolf Hess. Hess. The poem underlines how easily we can become seduced by the normalization of evil. To my mind, this poem is as eloquent as any essay Merton wrote on the senselessness of war. I'm just going to read part of it because it is a long poem. Chant to be used in processions around a site with furnaces how we made them sleep and purified them, how I commanded. I made cleaning appointments and then I made the travelers sleep. And after that, I made soap. I was born into a Catholic family, but as these people were not going to need a priest, I did not become a priest. I installed a perfectly good machine it gave satisfaction to many. When the trains arrived, the soil passengers received appointments for fun in the bathroom they did not guess. They would be given a greeting card to send home, taken care of with good jobs, wishing you would come to our joke. Another improvement I made was I built the chambers for 2,000 invitations at a time. The naked votaries were disinfected with Zyklon B. Children of tender age were always invited by reason of their youth. They were unable to work. They were marked out for play. They were washed like the others and more than the others. As you see in this poem, and throughout his entire life, Merton remained, in his words, the voice of a self-questioning person who struggles to cope with turbulent, mysterious, demanding, exciting, frustrating, confused existence. Though he found much to criticize in society and even in himself, he never stopped believing in the strength of hope. He was, after all, steeped in the Trappist tradition and in the monastic rule of St. Benedict, which instructs us to never lose hope in the mercy of God. People seem to think that it is in some way a proof that no merciful God exists if we have so many wars. On the contrary, consider how in spite of centuries of sin and greed and lust and cruelty and hatred and avarice and oppression and injustice, the human race can still recover each time 
can still produce men and women who overcome evil with good, hatred with love, greed with charity, lust and cruelty with sanctity. In this extraordinary time, in this time of multiple crises, may we be the men and the women who overcome evil with good, hatred with love, greed with charity, and cruelty with compassion. Let us be like Merton, seeking, questioning, and looking for the face of God in even the darkest places and in the darkest of times. And so to recall Merton's ending to the seven story mountain, sit finis libri, non finis querende. This is the end of the book, but not the end of the searching. May Merton inspire all of us to never stop searching. Thank you for your kind attention this evening and thanks be to God. Well, you've heard from me now, I'm gonna stop sharing the screen. There we go. We'd like to hear from, from you. We'd like to make it a conversation and Alan will help with this, and Peter Cunningham and Teresa. Um, and we'd love to hear from you uh, either in the chat or, or if you raise your hand using the reactions button, some of the passages that may have touched your life uh, from Merton or something you came across in Merton that may have transformed your insights into something. So we'd love to, to hear from some of you. Thank you, Judy. It was a wonderful presentation. Um, so many great photographs and great quotations. So as, as Judy said, we'd love to hear um, favorite passages of yours. So if you put them in the chat, uh, we have a couple people that I know would like to comment first. Carol Lennox, if you're out there and can unmute, you could go ahead and talk. Good evening, everyone. And thank you, Judith. That was a really wonderful presentation. I really, I really got a lot out of it. Um, so, so Judith had asked, you know, what was what's one way Merton has changed my thinking? And I always go back to, I think it's the last paragraph in New Seeds of Contemplation and the Cosmic Dance. And I actually keep that um, that whole several paragraphs on my mirror in the morning. And I've tried to commit it even now, especially through COVID. You know, this idea that the cosmic dance is going on all around us and we're invited to join, you know, whether we want to or not. And more recently, um, I've really been touched by his letter to Rachel Carson, where kind of along the same lines, he says, the whole world has always appeared as a transparent manifestation of the love of God. And man, but man has lost his sight and is blundering around aimlessly in the midst of the wonderful works of God. So that's my prayer that I might recover my sight. So. Thank you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Carol. Beautiful, beautiful reflection. And you picked one of Chris Primitz in my uh, favorite passages too from New Seeds of Contemplation. Thank you, Carol. Indeed, thanks, Carol. <clears throat> Jennifer Trentley, are you able to share something with us? Yes, I'm here. And yeah, Judith had also asked me and my... Uh, my quote is also from um, New Seeds. That's that's one of the books that's made a big um, difference and the whole idea of living authentically and um, moving towards your true self. And so this quote, according to Merton, contemplation is awakening, enlightenment, and the amazing intuitive grasp by which love gains certitude of God's creative, and dynamic intervention in our daily life. And I just love this because there's no, because there's no formula and creativity has become a big part of my um, spiritual practice. I do contemplative art. And also as a spiritual director, 
I have many people that come to me with these ideas. Oh, but I can't sit for 10 minutes a day and I can't do this for a half an hour. And, and so just knowing that, that Merton is offering the idea that, um, you know, that God, God intervenes in our daily life and, and it's up to us to awaken to it but it can come across in many, we can experience in many different ways. And thanks again, Judith, for your wonderful um, presentation and personal insight. Thank you, Jennifer. Indeed, thank you, Jennifer. And if others wanna either raise your hand so that we could see you would like to comment on something or uh, put something in the chat. And in the meantime, maybe, uh, Judy, I could ask a follow-up question. I, you said so much that I'd love to hear you uh, elaborate on, but one of the ideas I've never heard of it is this pan deepening. Yeah. What a wonderful word and uh, alternative to pandemic. So um, be intrigued how that word has made you think about things and perhaps line up with uh, the future in a new way. Yeah, well, I, I can't take credit for it. It was a, it was a spiritual director at the... Um, Prairie Woods Retreat Center, who actually came up with that. And I put it in one of my blogs and now other people have picked up on it. Michael Croth, who I think is on this call, he put it in his blog. And, um, but yeah, I think it refers to this, this going back in, more interiorly um, that we had, we had this, uh, those of us who took that opportunity, as I said, there was the gang at the, the capitals who didn't quite see it that way. Uh, that this was a time of pan deepening, but for many of us, you know, it was it was really a chance to um, deepen our interior life, reconnect with nature, uh, reconnect with my neighbors. I mean, I met people in my neighborhood that I didn't even know existed <laughs> because I had to be in my cell for those those many months, and so uh, that that pan deepening I think has to do with deepening of our of our interior life. And getting to know ourselves again, um, I hope that that was one of the outgrowths of the um, the pandemic that people enjoyed. What that 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 was one of the benefits, as as isolated and perhaps as lonely as it was. And it's interesting, um, you know, Merton's writings really change when he goes to live in the Hermitage for full time, and that that deep connection with nature really changes him. So um, he, he underwent his pan deepening. Another thing I'd love to hear you comment a bit on, you, you've been doing Merton for quite a long time now. What is it about Merton that sustains you and is likely to sustain you through the rest of your life? I often feel he's speaking directly to me. And I, I think that's the experience that many people have. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning of the talk that when, you know, he made himself extremely vulnerable in his writing. I think someone said, uh, you know, the man never had an unrecorded thought. And, uh, and he, you know, he wasn't afraid to, to let those less than beautiful aspects of, his, of, his, of, his, of himself come out in his writings. And I think that that's too, it gives us permission to look at those what I call the shadowy corners of the soul in ourselves. So those would be some of the, uh, the things that makes him such, such a good companion, especially in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. And perhaps related to that, I know you've been doing a lot of uh, work with uh, Brother Paul. That's no doubt uh, prompted many sidebar conversations that all of us would be happy to be a part of. Can you talk a bit about what it's been like to work with him, who in some ways is living at least a similar life to Thomas Burton and who knew him? So what's it been like in your uh, journeying alongside that good monk? Well, it's, it's really interesting because I see how much of Merton is in Brother Paul. And it's not that he, he appropriated Merton. It's, 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 it's almost like it's in his flesh. It's in his blood. And in our new book, you know, there's a lot of Brother Paul, Brother Paul's letters to me in, in our new book, um, How to Be. And 
it's amazing how, how you know, in, in preparing for this talk, I was really delving into Merton's journals again, delving into conjectures of a guilty bystander. And, you know, how much I was remembering from Brother Paul's letters that he wrote to me and how similar he sounded to Merton. And, you know, I really think that there are many people, I, I, I feel that with Jonathan Montaldo and Christine Boshin and Bonnie Thurston, that when I listened to them and Jim Finley, when he spoke and Jim Forrest, that, that Merton is in them. And, and I just hope maybe in some small way, I could be that someday for someone else too. I don't know, <laughs> I never could be like them, but um, it, it's a hope that in some small way. That's cool. And, um... I don't see any more in my in my chat room. Maybe I can ask one final question, and then we'll throw it back to to Teresa. Um, as we look at the future, obviously you and I are on the older end. The, one of the questions that that we have uh, in the Merton Society is how do we how do we expose the younger generation who's not going to grow up at least knowing somebody who knew Merton? Um, any clues as to how you may be doing it and how others may be doing it? Well, I mean, a good person, and he might be on this call, is Doug, Doug Hurtler. Um, you know, I think, I think you give the Merton, I think you give them letters, uh, um, letters to a white liberal. You know, if you want to understand what's happening with Black Lives Matters, read letters to a white liberal. Um, if you want to understand these debates that we're having about how much we spend on the military, read his, you know, his essays in Faith and Violence and, 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 and some of the letters that he wrote to Dorothy Day. Um, he's extreme, the, the, the idea about Merton is he's extremely relevant for, the, for whatever time you're in. I don't know how he does it, but he is. And when Julianne Ra uh, Wallace spoke, she responded, I think, to Jim Forrest's um, talk that he gave at his Tuesdays with Merton. I, that, you know, she said that, that, um, you know, he's speaking to me, he's speaking to our times. And I think that's what we have to put put forth to, to the kids, maybe even more so than Seven Story Mountain or Thoughts in Solitude and New Seeds is his relevance to these justice issues of today. Um, sorry, sister, uh, Teresa, I'd like to ask one more because um, Chris Pramuk has asked a question of us that I'd love to hear you talk about. He's interested in you sharing a bit more about your friendship with Brother Paul, and particularly how has the letter writing, as it was with Merton, deepened and broadened your own relationship with God? Yeah, well, a lot of it, okay, those are two questions. Um, I think Brother Paul and I connected on poetry, because although, you know, I've been a journalist professionally, poetry was always my first love. It was my first love as a writer. And uh, I've, I've published two collections of poetry and Brother Paul and I connected on that level. And uh, our first book was a, was a series of poems and reflections, The Art of Pausing. Um, it's, I have to tell you, it's unbelievable the letters that Paul wrote to me, um, talking about things, his, his, his ideas about what is the resurrection. Um, you know, his ideas about meditation, contemplation, it's, it's really hard to, to just summarize in a, in a few sentences, but it's very profound things that he wrote to me in those letters and things that, you know, I have to read and reread because there's so much to them. And one of the reasons we wanted to publish these letters is because people like Brother Paul won't exist in a few years. You know, the man is 79 years old, arrived at the monastery when he was 17. He's had 60 plus years of contemplation. There just aren't, you know, people are not entering at that age anymore. And they're not spending that many years in monastic life. So I wanted, I wanted some vehicle to, to, to get that wisdom down, to preserve that wisdom. And, you know, letter writing was the vehicle that we chose. And I just, I say to myself, when I just reread the book, I had to reread it in its final proof. And I said, you know, Brother Paul carries this book, <laughs> you know, not me, Brother Paul. Well, there's a long tradition of letter writing within the Christian tradition. 
Um, I would agree with Bonnie Thurston that somehow Merton's in you too, Judy. So thank you so much. And Teresa, are you still here with us? Ready I am. Yes. All right. I am still here. I warned Ellen that I might not be because there's a violent thunderstorm going on outside my window. Um, I want to thank Judith for the your powerful words coupled with those very powerful images. And you now very deservedly joined the gallery of luminary presenters on Tuesday with Merton. So thanks Judith for your presentation. I also want to extend a special thanks to Peter Cunningham and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Peter has given so generously of his time and talent since we launched Tuesdays with Merton a year ago in August. And we are so grateful for your service, Peter. Beginning next month, the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana will be our co-sponsor and provide technical support. I want to thank Franciscan Father Dan Horan. He's a member of our planning committee and the new director of St. Mary's Center for Spirituality who assists uh, Peter during these Tuesdays with Merton presentations. And then of course, Ellen Culp for so skillfully moderating the questions. Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube and Mark Mead who makes them available as podcasts. So if you ever miss uh, Tuesdays with Merton, you can just go to uh, merton.org ITMS and there you will find links to the YouTube and podcasts. Um, if you're not already a member of the International Thomas Merton Society, you might want to consider joining. And we invite you to join uh, going to that same website, merton.org slash ITMS. I am delighted to announce that next month's speaker will be Sophronia Scott. Sophronia is the winner of this year's ITMS Louis Award for her, her book, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton. The registration link for her presentation will soon be posted on the ITMS website. So now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in September.